rest, Sabbath as rest. Let's pray before we jump in. Father, thank you for your word that brings life where there's death. Your word that brings hope where there's despair. Your word that brings uh, truth where there's confusion. Lord, we thank you that as we look to your word today, you are a God who shows up in the midst of our burdens and our busyness, our tiredness, our, our brokenness, all that's happening that we bring to the table today. And we know you meet us. And so we ask as you meet us in your word that you would change us. Give us a transformed heart, a transformed mind that we might love you as we ought. Our Lord and Savior, our great God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Japan has a fascinating and powerful, really revealing word. And the word is this, it's karoshi. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but YouTube says I am. I'm, I'm going to see if I can get it right. But karoshi, and it literally means death by overwork. Death by overwork. In 2013, there was a 31-year-old journalist who was uh, working for her, her organization, and uh, she was working so much, she logged 159 hours of overtime in one month. She took like a day and a half off the entire month. And as she was working and working and working, putting in hour after hour after hour, not taking any breaks, at the end of the month, she died. And as they were doing the autopsy and the doctor pronounced her death, the doctor said that she died from karoshi. It was death by overwork. And her death, among many others in that same period of time, kind of sparked a national debate in Japan, and people were concerned about the work culture that had developed in their nation. And so they called for the government to try to come up with some regulations to, to make, it, you know, make it harder for businesses to work people like that. And, and the government said, well, we don't really believe there's a problem. So they did a study on the problem. And the study came back with the results that one out of five workers in Japan was in danger of karoshi. And so they realized, okay, this is a bigger problem than we thought. They, they came up with some ways to incentivize people to come up with creative solutions to try to make the problem go away or to lessen the problem. And thing after thing didn't really work. Nothing really was happening until finally some people came up with some really crazy ideas. Like they had to get very creative to combat the culture that had taken place. And one of them was this purple cape. They had a purple cape that they would use in the workplace, and anybody who worked overtime had to wear the purple cape. And it looked like a cape, like a three-year-old made this cape. And it might sound silly, but in their uh, shame and honor culture, uh, for someone to wear this embarrassing three-year-old purple cape actually made progress. And it wasn't until that you know, someone puts the cape on and they have to sit there at their desk on a late Tuesday night and, and they're working as everyone looks at them and, and laughs at them that now people decided, okay, this is, this is ridiculous, I'll go home. And what's fascinating to me is they didn't even want to do it. That what actually got them to change their behavior was something that, that showed them that what they didn't want is what they should want. 
Does that make sense? Right up until the, the very last minute, they were addicted to their work, even until their heart stopped. Until someone said, you can't live like this. You can't live like this. Listen, workism, you know, this, this idea of, of work becoming your identity, work becoming your, your, your drive, your, your sense of purpose and value and worth, this, this idea of workism is really becoming, many people say, the, the fastest growing religion in this country. It's not some problem in another country. This, this is right here in our country. Workism. And it's the idea that, that everything you do, everything you achieve, the performance you have, the, the, the activities in your life, and it's not necessarily the work you get paid for, but just doing stuff is what defines you. And I think many people at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, over a year ago now, they thought this was my chance to be freed of my uh, slavery to work. You know, the world shuts down, we literally can't go anywhere, we can't do anything, now I have to rest. Like, it was a forced sabbatical for many people. But now, you know, over a year later, I think our workism has just shifted. It's taken on new forms. Many people now working odd and ends and working from home and working from the office or working wherever you go, and it's kind of a hodgepodge here and there, and, and there's no real lines anymore. There's no boundaries. You're just always on. You're just always one text away, one email away, one Zoom call away. You're, you're always right there, and so you never really get free. And the workism is still deep. And you can tell it's still deep because we're still just as exhausted. We're still just as anxious, just as worried. In fact, people have said that the mental health Stats are just climbing and climbing and climbing as people's, you know, sense of what has happened, the trauma we've experienced and the exhaustion we're feeling settles in. And so what do we do? I think what the scriptures would say is we need a Sabbath. And not just one, but we need a rhythm of Sabbath in our life. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to start a new series today. We're calling it Redeeming Rest. Redeeming Rest. And and what I've realized is I've kind of been on this journey not very long, only maybe a year and a half, two years, that I've really tried to make Sabbath a, a real practice, not just a, an idea in my mind. Uh, I've noticed in my own life that Sabbath is the most neglected spiritual discipline today. It really is. Like, you think about all the other spiritual disciplines. If you grew up in the church, you're, you're aware of what that term means. You know, Bible reading and fasting and praying and all these different things that, that we do, practices that help us grow in our faith. You could be in the church a really long time and not have any training on Sabbath. In fact, it's odd to me that Sabbath is the only spiritual discipline that makes it in the Ten Commandments, and none others do. Not prayer. There's no thou shalt pray. There's no thou shalt read your Bible. The fourth commandment, thou shalt, you know, remember the Sabbath. Remember how does the Sabbath make it in the Ten Commandments? Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, he says it this way. He says it's because people who keep the Sabbath live all seven days differently. It's not just one day, but it changes your whole week. 
People, he says it this way, watch out, the Sabbath is dangerous. If you start keeping the Sabbath, it will change every other day. And so I want to take us on a journey uh, toward a Sabbath rhythm in our life and, and really try to build a theology, and not just a theology, but a practice over the next five weeks on the Sabbath. And so before we get into all the hows of what a Sabbath is and how that works and what that looks like, we're going to cover that in the coming weeks. Today I just want to look at what is the heart of the Sabbath. What is the heart behind this spiritual practice? So if you're taking notes today, let's, let's begin with an invite. Number one is a Sabbath invite, a Sabbath invite. Jesus gives us this radical invite in verse 28. Look at what he says. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. These are some of Jesus' most famous words. In fact, they're some of the most profound words because they come right after something just astounding that Jesus says. Right up at the top of that paragraph, Jesus is talking about uh, something that no one else in that culture had ever heard before. This might be the most astounding thing Jesus had, had said up to that point. He says that the only way for you to know who God is, is to come through me. In fact, he says that the only way for you to know what he's like is to look at me. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what he looks like, how he acts, what his thoughts are, all of that, Jesus says, it's me. I am God in human flesh. God has revealed himself through me. That's the radical thing that Jesus says. And then he says something even more astounding. He says, now come. He says, the only way you can get to God is through me, and then I'm going to invite you in. I want you to come. And who does he say, I want to come? Not the wise, not the understanding, not the powerful, not not the prestigious, not the people who have their life together. He says, I want you to come if you're two things, busy and burdened. Think about that for a moment. Jesus says, in the translation, one of the other translations, I think it was the New American Standard, said it this way, all who have worked themselves to exhaustion. That's who Jesus invites. If you're so burnt out, you have no other option, you're the perfect candidate. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way. He says, are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. I mean, what a promise. What a promise. He says, all of you who have nothing working, everything's chaotic, everything's falling apart, you come to me, and what will I give you? I'll give you rest. And the word rest there in the Greek is anapazo. It means to pause, to stop, to cease, to take one's rest. It's even used sometimes to describe someone's death. Jesus is saying, I want you to come to me and stop. Cease. Rest. Sound familiar? In the Old Testament, the word that they used for that? Sabbath. Shabbat in Hebrew means the same thing. Stop. Cease. Rest. Jesus is saying, all of you who are burdened, exhausted, worn out by life, your sin is overwhelming, your misery is is taking over, everything is falling apart, I want you to come and Sabbath. You'll find Sabbath. See, all you need for Sabbath is need. That's it. For Sabbath, all you need is need. 
Thomas Aquinas, one of the, the greatest theologians in, in uh, church history, he was asked one time this question that someone thought would stump him. They said, you know, what, what would be the, the thing that would cause our hearts to be fully satisfied? Like, when would we know that, that our desires would be fully satisfied, we would be fully content? How, how would that happen? And he went away and he thought about it for a little while, and, and he came back, and this is his answer. Everything. Everything. In other words, you would have to experience everything at all times in every way. You'd have to have every place that you wanted to visit checked off your boxes. You'd have to experience every restaurant there could possibly be. You'd have to have every partner, every conversation. You'd have to own everything. You'd have to have every dollar in all the world. You'd have to have the highest ranking in every career. You'd have to have everything for your kids that you'd ever dreamed of. You'd have to have everything. Here's the thing. Not just at one time like you had it once, but you'd have to have it at all times, in all things, forever. And then you could finally sit back and say, Ah, I'm happy. I'm content. And what, what he's saying is this. He's, he's saying that that's, that's the human condition, that there's so much desire built into us that it's never fully satisfied. It's never fully satisfied. Uh, John Mark Comer, who wrote a book on uh, hurry, he says it this way, he puts it into the simple math. He says, infinite desire plus finite soul equals restlessness. In other words, you have an infinite desire for all things at all times and all ways, plus you have a soul that can't contain all of that. And so you're going to be restless. Uh, the great African bishop and theologian St. Augustine said it famously, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Until they find their rest in you. What does that look like? What, what does a restless heart look like? How do you know that that's happening in your own heart? Here, here's a few ways that I'm just seeing it in my own life. See, we fill our days with distraction rather than delight. We can't enjoy slowness and silence, so we're always hurried and loud. We're discontent with what we have, daydreaming about what we don't have. We envy those around us, letting bitterness take root and blossom. We struggle to trust people, always worried they're working some angle. Right? There's this restlessness that's just constantly going, constantly moving, and Jesus says, that's just the tip of the iceberg. That what you see in your busyness and in your burden, that's just the external. But what's really happening below the surface, at the root of your restlessness, is unbelief. To put it simply, we don't believe God is who He says He is. And we don't believe that we are who God says we are. And, and the reason you know that is because in our pride, we try to be God for Him. In our fear, we, we try to control life for Him, right? We start doing things to try to be God. We try to protect ourselves, provide for ourselves, prove ourselves. We try to make sure everything is under control. Everything is constantly managed and, and, and manicured and, and done well. And we got to keep moving and moving and going and going because if we don't, who will? And let me tell you, it's exhausting to try to be God for God. I try. It's exhausting. 
And then Jesus says this. Jesus invites us to this posture. This posture, listen, Sabbath is a posture before it's ever a practice. Before it's ever a practice. You have to get the posture right. He's saying it's so simple, but it's shockingly difficult. It's so simple, you just simply stop. You cease. You rest. But the reason that's so hard is because it takes us getting to the point where we have no other option, where we're completely exhausted before we think we need it. I think that's why Jesus invites the busy and the burden. I think that's why he invites the people who, who don't have it all together because he knows the people who do have it all together, or at least think they do, won't come until they find out they don't have it all together. Jesus knows that that's not the way it's meant to be. Jesus knows that, you know, Sabbath, and we'll get into this in a couple of weeks, this is the design. It's not meant to be a recovery program. It's meant to be the way we live, that, that out of the health of our life, we were designed for these rhythms, and, and so it's designed to be the way of flourishing, but Jesus knows that's not where we're at most of the time. Jesus knows where, where we are usually is exhausted, burnout, full of guilt, full of shame, and don't know where to go. And he says, come. Come like that. Come with all your need. Come with all your confusion. Come. So why don't we? Why do I struggle to do that? Why do you struggle to do that? I think it's because we, we misunderstand his heart. And this is the second point, a Sabbath heart. Look at verse 29. Jesus has incredible words here. He says, take my yoke upon me or upon you and learn from me. He says this, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Charles Spurgeon once pointed out that out of all four gospels, 89 chapters worth of content on Jesus's life, this is the only place, the only place in all that content that Jesus describes himself, his own heart only place. Like you learn about all kinds of things. Jesus' birth, his, his early childhood. You learn about his ministry, his miracles. You learn about his teachings and his sermons and all the healings he did. And then you learn about his death, his resurrection, his ascension. All of that is in the Gospels, but there's only one place that tells us what he's actually like, where, where he says, this is what my heart is. And it's right here in Matthew chapter 11. And what does he say? Two words. It's gentle and lowly. My heart is gentle and lowly. Fascinating words. The word gentle uh, is used only a few times in the New Testament. And, and actually, it usually means this kind of meekness or, or uh, humility of, of posture. And so Jesus uses it when he says, blessed are the meek, Right? It's, it's that same word. And so Jesus is saying that about himself, but then he uses this word lowly. And lowly is similar. It's also translated uh, humble sometimes in different contexts, but it's, it's humility of a different kind. It's not humility of posture. It's actually humility of position. Like you're at the bottom. So gentle is describing his posture of heart in the sense that this is what he, how he feels towards people. This is how he thinks towards people. This, this is his posture but lowly is saying, he's at the bottom with you. So it's not just, uh, it's not just uh, 
sorry, the point here is Jesus isn't high and distant, but he's low and near. He's accessible. Dane Ortland, who wrote a book on this uh, called Gentle and Lowly, he summarizes it like this. He says, Jesus isn't trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exacerbated. The posture most natural to him isn't a pointed finger, but open arms. Open arms. And see, the Sabbath reveals that Savior's heart. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm inviting you to myself to rest, and and here's my heart. I'm going to reveal it to you as you come to me. My heart is gentle and lowly. In The Wizard of Oz, uh, you know, the classic movie, uh, the travelers, Dorothy and and the lion, the scarecrow, the tin man, all four of them, they're, they're headed down the yellow brick, yellow brick road, whatever the thing is called. Uh, they're, they're headed to Emerald City. I'm blanking for a second. Um, and uh, they're headed to the city. They're, they're going to go see the wizard. And because the wizard can, can solve all their problems. They've all got their own issues, and, and they're hoping the wizard is this all-powerful, mighty person who can solve their issues. And so they show up to Emerald City. They see this amazing place, and they walk in, and there's this you know, terrifying hallway that they walk into. And it's this long, dark, gothic-looking thing. They walk down, and they show up. They go into the room, and there's this green smoke explosion and behind the smoke now is this scary-looking, bodiless face. You know the scene, right? They, they see this crazy-looking guy, and, and then he says this. He says, I am Oz, the great and terrible, and who are you? And Dorothy tries to muster up enough courage to respond. And before she could even get her words out, he, he cuts her off and says, Silence! The great and powerful Oz knows why you are here. Step forward, Tin Man. Right, And all this intimidation and fear is is filling the room, and the Tin Man kind of shuffles to the front. And the wizard says, you dare come to me. Oh, sorry. Yeah, he says, you dare come to me for a heart, you clinking, clanking, clattering collection of junk. And then he just turns and just lets loose on the rest of them. He looks over at the lion and he says, you a lion? He says to the scarecrow, you have the audacity to ask me for a brain? And of course, the the wizard in the story, he's a fraud, right? He's the man behind the curtain. He's a little, you know, disheveled guy over there pulling levers and stuff. But but they have this scene that, that conveys, I think, what many people in our culture think of majesty and holiness and power is holiness equals harshness. You hear that? And so what the wizard thought is, if I'm going to convey my power, I need to be mean and harsh and angry. And we look at God that way. We look at God as if he's He's holy, and and so therefore he's harsh. And don't get me wrong, his holiness is real. Holiness, he he is the most holy. He is the most high. And holiness means he's unique. He's set apart. He's different. And there is no other God like our God. He is one like no other. In fact, right before this, when Jesus reveals his heart, he had just finished pronouncing judgment on the unrepentant cities. So when you hear Jesus say, I am gentle and lowly, he's not saying I'm mushy and cowardly. He is a holy and righteous God, but 
what he's saying is to those who are mine, to those who have repented, those who have come to me, you'll see what my heart is really like. My heart is gentle and lowly. It's not distant and harsh. You'll see that what he's saying is that I want to reveal to you, to those that are wrapped in my righteousness, those that are covered in my blood, I want to reveal to you my true heart. And see, most Christians, you, you may not think of Jesus as, as full of wrath or God the Father as full of wrath, but you might think of him as kind of got this side look at you. Like, he's not really sure if you mean it. He's not really sure if you're serious. He's always asking you questions like, when are you going to get it together? When are you going to really do something for me? You promised me you would do this. What, why have you done this? You know, and there's just this kind of general coldness of God towards you. I mean, if you're honest, most of us deal with this sense of, I don't know if God's really happy. I know he forgave me, but I don't know. I feel like this, this, there's this gap between us. Do you, do you sense that? That he's not lowly and near you, but he's distant, ready to catch you in something ready to pounce on you. See, there's a deep legalism that fuels our workism. We, we can't stop working because we think that in the working, we're going to earn something that will make God finally happy with us. We can't stop working because we're, we're hoping that we can get something good enough to demand that, that something uh, happen for us. And so we need, we need to do more. We we're constantly need to do more for ministry, more for our kids, more for the community, more for the church, more for whatever it may be, more at your job, more for your boss. We, we just got to do more because if I don't do more, if I stop, somehow I'll, I'll have failed. And so I just got to keep moving. I got to keep moving. I got to keep moving. And it's, it's this deep legalism that we got to work. We got to work. To stop is to sin. And Jesus invites us with a different vision. See, this is why we need the Bible, because many of us, we, we haven't read the Bible. And so we project on God what we think God is like. And then Jesus comes in the scriptures and he says, no, this is what God is really like. I am revealing to you God in human flesh. And let me tell you what, he, what he's like. The God revealed in Christ, in Christ is not like us. He's not a harsh, workaholic, slave-driving God. He says, come to me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. My rest is a gift. It flows freely from my deepest desires for you. I long for your renewal. I overflow with kindness toward your weakness. I am patient with your pace of progress. My arms are open, my heart is gentle, my posture is lowly, so come. Come openly. Come honestly. Come now. Come. Can you hear his heart? Can you hear that that's, that's completely different than what, what you might think in, in, in your, your assumptions about his harshness? He's saying, come to me. This is my real heart. This is what I'm really like then when jesus invites us to come what's fascinating is he gives us a strange tool when we come and this is the last point a sabbath yoke 
a Sabbath, lo- a Sabbath yoke. Look at verse uh, 30 with me. Jesus says, For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, this is the second time in just those three verses he's used this metaphor of a yoke. And so he, he says it again, and, and you may not be familiar with a yoke. A yoke is a wooden bar or, or frame that kind of goes a- across the shoulders and the back of two animals, usually oxen or horse, somebody pulling something. And so it was often used in farming as, as a way to carry more weight, to pull more weight. And so it might seem like maybe the oddest thing that Jesus could possibly say in the moment. Remember, he's talking to people who are exhausted. He's talking to people who are burnt out. He's talking to people who don't want to see anything that reminds them of work. Maybe what they need is a vacation or a mattress or a spa day. And then Jesus says, all right, I'm going to give you a yoke. What, what is that? And it's because Jesus, listen, he doesn't give them escape. He gives them equipment. Equipment. And so, listen, he says, he says, I want you to come and I'm going to give you this yoke, right? And Dallas Willard says it this way. He says it's hidden in plain sight, the secret of the easy yoke. It's right here because the yoke was a metaphor in their day for the rabbi's teaching. So a, a rabbi, a teacher in their culture, he would have his own yoke, his own way of carrying the weight of this world, right? It was, it was a way of summarizing their teaching. So one rabbi might have one yoke, another had a different yoke, another had a different yoke. And Jesus, this rabbi, this Jewish rabbi, standing in front of his disciples, he says, I've got a yoke too, and mine is easy. Mine is light. And he says, I want you to come attach yourself to me. Right? The idea of a yoke is two people attached that become one. He's saying to you, you have two options. You can carry your weight yourself. You can carry your burdens yourself. You can carry your busyness yourself. Or you can come be yoked to me. And I'll carry it for you. I'll carry all the weight. I'll pull it. I'll I'll be with you. I'll be right beside you. You won't be alone. I mean, he's, he doesn't promise no weight. He doesn't promise no work. He doesn't promise no weariness. He's not saying your life isn't going to be hard. An easy life is not an option as a Christian, but an easy yoke is. It is. If you go to the Rockefeller Center in Manhattan, there's this iconic statue. And it's, it's a, a statue of Atlas, who was, uh, in Greek mythology, a man who got cursed with carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. You've probably seen this, this famous uh, statue. He's kind of leaning over, and the, this big globe is on his back, and his arms are kind of back, and there's this grimace on his face, and his muscles are all strained and flexed, and, and you could tell it's just crushing him. He's carrying this weight of the world on his back. And what's interesting, I don't know if the artist meant to do this on purpose or not, but the artist had Atlas facing St. Patrick's Cathedral. And which is right across the way, and, and there's a statue in St. Patrick's Cathedral, but it's a very different statue. In the cathedral, there's a statue of a little boy Jesus. He's about, you know, five, six years old, and he's holding the world too. He's holding the world just like this in his hands. There's no strain on his face. 
His muscles aren't flexed. He doesn't look exhausted and burnt out. Just little five-year-old, six-year-old Jesus, chicken nugget eating Jesus, just right there holding the world in the palm of his hand. And you see the contrast. And when Jesus invites us, he's saying you have two ways. You can carry the weight like Atlas on, on your shoulders for the rest of your life and strain and exhaustion and burnout and weariness. Or you can come and I'll carry it for you. I'll carry it all. right? He, it, when we keep the Sabbath, we stop to give Jesus the weight. That's the point of the Sabbath. We, we stop to see the Savior who stopped for us. The same Savior who stopped to notice the beggar on the street. The same Savior who stopped to love the hemorrhaging woman. The same Savior who stopped to notice the tax collector, Zacchaeus. The same Savior who stopped to weep over the city of Jerusalem. The same Savior who stopped while on the cross to love the criminals next to Him. Jesus was never too busy, never too burdened, never too much to stop for us. He stopped to be with us. To be with the outcast and the forgotten, to be with the sinful uh, outcast, to be with the tired and the weary, to be with the overwhelmed and defeated, to be with those who had no other option but Him. And He came with one end, to set us free to rest. To rest. He says to all of us, come to me, all you who are laboring, heavy laden, I will give you rest. Rest from the attempt to earn your place. Rest from fears of what might happen if we get out of the way. Fears of, of arrogance and, and a heart consumed with our ambition. Jesus says, come, rest in me. Rest in the one who's done all the work. Rest in the one who died for your eternity. Hebrews 4 says, there remains a rest for the people of God. And it's Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, our Sabbath rest. And so I want to ask you as we close today, if, if you're resting in Him, right? Before we start this journey of Sabbathing together and talk about what the practice of Sabbath looks like, you have to come with the posture of, Lord Jesus, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't carry this. I, I can't just keep going and going and going. I have to stop. And that's what faith looks like. We're, we're going to see this in the series that Sabbath is one of the most uh, profound uh, practical ways to display faith because you actually physically don't do it. And that's what faith means. Faith is to say, I'm not going to do it because Jesus did it for me. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Jesus rose from the dead for my sins. I didn't do it. He did it for me. I'm putting my trust in him and I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to do nothing but come. Come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would um, help us to go to you. Help us to uh, let go of our fears and our arrogance and all that keeps us uh, stuck. Lord, just like the folks who, who wouldn't stop working until their hearts stopped. We, we just, we can't stop unless you give us a new desire. And so we pray, God, you would, by your spirit, change our hearts. Give us hearts that want to stop. Give us hearts that will have the courage and the faith to trust you and to let go of all the things that we try to do to be God and to trust you and let you be God. 
pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.